Now, we are delighted to uh, say that we have with us, once again, Professor Gary Loop, Professor of History at Tufts University. And he is the author of several interesting publications, which make me think that his focus and concentration is mostly on Japan and Japanese history, perhaps, but we'll find out. But in any case, uh, a couple of his books, Servants, Shop Hands, and Laborers in the Cities of Tokugawa, Japan, and that is published by Princeton University. And then another one, Male Colors, The Construction of Male Homosexuality in Tokugawa, Japan. And a third publication, Interracial Intimacy in Japan, Western Man and Japanese Women, 1543 to 1900. Yeah, I have a career in Japanese history, but uh, I've been a, a lifelong anti-war activist and do a lot of writing in connection with the world situation. So I have wide, wide interests in teaching experience. Well, when last we met right here on this show a year ago, we were expressing both, I think each of us are expressing deep skepticism about the hysteria over what the media warned was the inevitable Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. So I, I think it's incumbent on us to begin with the unavoidable question. What was your initial reaction to the full-scale Russian invasion? And how do you now view the war one year into the hostilities? And I, I promise that after yeah. that rather superficial level of, of uh, inquiry, we'll move on to providing some much-needed context and, and background uh, to the situation. Um, yeah, well, um, thank you for recommending to me that I, um, that I listen to the year-ago uh, broadcast, just to refresh my memory. You're welcome. Um, and um, actually, um, as I listened to it, I thought I wouldn't change anything except for this and this and, you know, uh, small things. But uh, the fact is, I didn't uh, believe that Putin would be foolish enough to uh, invade uh, as he did. Um, I think the uh, what I was interested in doing was to demonstrate the context and the encroachment of NATO uh, year by year, provocation by provocation, uh, leading to some sort of major clash. And that's what uh, I found so worrisome, and that's why I've campaigned against NATO for all this time. Um, but um, the particular point that I, I made, I said, I don't think uh, that uh, Russia's interested in invading or something to that effect. And actually, I still don't think that that's the, the main point, is to invade and conquer Ukraine. Uh, the fact that um, the Russian government has responded favorably to the Chinese peace proposal, which is much poo-pooed if mentioned at all in the Western press, but the fact that uh, the Russians say, yes, this is a good starting point, and that that includes a complete Russian withdrawal from uh, Ukraine, except for the contested regions, as the Chinese document puts it, meaning the Donbass and Crimea. Uh, the very fact that the Russians would agree to that suggests that the issue is not conquest of, U of uh, Ukraine, but um, preventing Ukraine from becoming an outpost of U.S. military bases and a, a stationing point for U.S. Uh, nuclear arms, as the Russians have been saying since uh, 2008. 
so I, I, I was wrong uh, in um, not anticipating that there would actually be a Russian invasion. I saw much of the U.S. agitation around that possibility as designed to strengthen the U.S. hand in Europe and to oblige its allies, who had become quite uh, wayward and not agreeing with a whole lot, to uh, really line up behind the United States. And I thought that that would be somewhat unlikely, particularly because it would mean the Germans in particular shooting themselves in the foot by denying themselves access to cheap uh, Russian gas. In fact, uh, I was quite uh, surprised when the Germans, well, I continue to be surprised at the Germans capitulating to U.S. demands in terms of arms shipments and boycott on uh, Russian trade in various respects and possibly even participating in that uh, strike against the Nord Stream 2. So the, the other, the elements of my analysis a year ago, which I could recapitulate briefly, but I think that uh, they all remain as valid as they were then. And principle among them is the fact that NATO expansion is the issue. And those who try to say, no, you know, that's a separate issue, or that's just an excuse, they don't know their history. They don't know the sequence of events that led to this point. Yeah, well, we definitely need to go over some of that again because we can't assume that anybody was listening a year ago is listening right, right, tonight. Right. But I just want to get us into maybe a broader or take a step back a little bit and note that the media's characterization of the war has been completely, I think, devoid of any historical context. It's been jingoistic cheerleading, really, providing no context but many, I think, patent falsehoods about the origins of the conflict. And much of this, I think, can be attributed to this sort of blooming Russophobia and the yeah. the new Cold War that we are now in. And I, it just completely mystifies me as to how we got here because, I mean, you know, I, I guess I need to look at the geopolitical machinations behind much of this stuff to, to come to that answer. But it took me by surprise a bit that, you know, this has been going on the past 20 years trying to develop this this case against Russia, the post-Soviet Russia, which, you know, which basically laid down and spread its legs for us uh, right after the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union, allowed all these hedge fund the venture capitalists to come in there and, and basically try to reduce the country to a neoliberal playground. And, and then when a leader comes along who says, all right, enough of that, I'm going to do my own thing here. I, I, maybe I'll be corrupt and maybe I'll, I'll grab what I can grab for myself, but no more of this free-for-all going on. That's when it seemed like the worm turned and Hillary Clinton and the gang became anti-Russian and started pointing the finger at Putin as being the worst dictator on the planet. Anyway, your perspective. Well, I, I always like to think in chronological order, you know, to, to have a, a timeline to kind of explain uh, what's happening. And I would point to a couple dates. Uh, 1990 and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the promise exchanged between then the Soviet Secretary General Gorbachev and Herbert H. Walker Bush, that in exchange for Russia's acceptance of the reunification of Germany and thereby the expansion of NATO to include that section of Germany, that NATO not expand further. 
And Bush replied, not one inch will NATO spread to the east. Now, of course, this is happening at a time when the NATO allies themselves were kind of wondering, well, where's the alliance going to go now that there's no point in it? And there really was in this country as well some discussion about, well, is NATO, you know, really relevant anymore? Is it worth all that expense? I mean, there's no enemy anymore. Not quite a decade then followed, uh, after which Bill Clinton, who for some reason is celebrated to this day among some Democrats, uh, the Clinton that we associate with the bombing of Bosnia and then the bombing of Serbia, um, using NATO uh, in the process for the first time NATO was deployed actually after the Cold War in the, in the Balkans. So NATO expands in 1998 to include Poland and Hungary and what was then Czechoslovakia. And the Russians said, why are you doing this? This, is, this violates the, the promise. But uh, on the other hand, Yeltsin was beholden to Bill Clinton because he had helped to release international monetary fund support for Russia at a time when Yeltsin was behind in the polls and the U.S. was definitely intervening in the Russian uh, election at that time. Yeltsin was a friend of the United States, a teddy bear of the United States. The U.S. had stood by him as he bombarded the Russian parliament. And so Yeltsin really wasn't in much of a position to protest the expansion of NATO. And then uh, Putin comes to power in 1990, and um, he makes it clear, you know, we're not happy about the expansion of NATO. Uh, And if you do, we're interested in actually joining ourselves. And he was sort of laughed out of the room. And he shared this, actually, uh, humiliating though it is. So it, it was clear to him, as it should be clear to most people, I think, that uh, NATO is not, despite its current mission statement, designed to promote peace and stability in Europe, but rather to, to challenge the, so, to, the, uh, the Russian Federation. And then, you know, it, it expanded further to the very borders of Russia uh, when the Baltic states were included. And uh, then in 2008, NATO announced its plans to incorporate Georgia and Ukraine as well, at which point the Russians uh, communicated directly to the Pentagon, as I recall, and said, this is a red line. We cannot tolerate these countries on our borders becoming part of an anti-Russian military alliance. So one can't say that the U.S. hadn't been warned. Uh, It's very similar to the United States, say, warning uh, China or Russia or any other distant power from consolidating a military alliance involving Canada and Mexico. I mean, it's very, very reasonable from your basic political international relations perspective to see that this is a provocation. And yet it continued. And the way that uh, Putin dealt with that perceived threat in Georgia is well known. There was Russian intervention in Georgia and recognition of the two secessionist republics in Georgia. I thought that Putin's handling of that was very savvy, very tactically intelligent. That is, he was bold, but also sufficiently cautious and restrained so as not to provoke World War III. And I had thought that the same kind of judgment would 
prevail in Ukraine. But um, apparently the, the process had just gone so far that people in Moscow, and it's not just Putin, I think the entire power establishment in, in Russia is quite on board the project of preventing Ukraine's entering NATO. Who is responsible, do you think, for the failure to initiate and stage any direct negotiations between Russia and U- Ukraine at this point? Well, to go back to the chronological aspect, I would say that in 2014, after the Maidan coup, which was just that, I mean, I like to quote Stratford because they're, you know, kind of regarded as an impartial authority on military affairs, but they said this is the most open coup that in modern times. And Victoria Nuland, um, who was the U.S. ambassador involved in or overseeing the ambassador in Ukraine, was herself uh, admitted that uh, the U.S. had spent $5 billion in Ukraine ostensibly to support the Ukrainian people's European aspirations, by which she meant EU entering, although she really wasn't so interested in EU. She meant involvement in NATO. So, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that the United States wanted regime change in Ukraine and was prepared to do something it does very often, which is to use forces on the ground and fund them and organize them. And the result is what we saw in Maidan, including the neo-fascists involved there. And then once the new regime was in power and had, you know, clearly broken off ties with with Moscow and a pro-NATO set of people now in power, Biden was appointed by Obama as a sort of special representative ongoingly to Ukraine with the particular task of helping wipe out corruption. And what does that mean? Is the United States really all that concerned about corruption in key allies like Saudi Arabia? I don't think so. I think that that was a, I mean, basically the way we should read that is that Biden was was taking responsibility for cleaning up Ukraine such that it could be presented to other NATO allies as having fulfilled the necessary prerequisites for NATO admission. Otherwise, it's just very difficult to understand that degree of involvement in the issue of firing prosecutors. And why was his son, Hunter, with no experience in corporate gas stuff, made a member of the board of directors of the Burisma Gas Company? I'm saying that Biden himself is deeply invested in the project of bringing Ukraine into NATO. And that was well known during his campaign. His campaign literature said that he strongly supports NATO expansion. So I can see the Russians, upon his election, thinking, all right, they're going to move quickly to facilitate NATO membership for Ukraine. And we've had enough. And so we're going to resist. And unfortunately, that response has taken the form of a bloody, immoral, unjustifiable invasion. We're speaking with Professor Gary Loop. He's a professor of history at Tufts University. And the topic tonight, of course, the war in Ukraine. 
a bit of retrospective here as we spoke exactly one year ago, anticipating something happening there, but not the full-blown invasion of Ukraine. You know, John Mertenheimer has opined quite a bit on the topic of NATO expansion and Ukraine. His views are, are very interesting because he has a, a nuanced approach to it, much to the chagrin of the Western media. One of the things he said was that people were saying, oh, well, look, obviously Russia was trying to take over Ukraine and turn it into a, a state in Russia. And Mirschenheimer said, no, that, that's ridiculous because they did not have, nor will they have in the near future, the troops under arms ready to do that. There was no way they would be able to occupy and hold a state as large as, as Ukraine. They had other motives. And so I'm wondering if we might take a moment to put Mirschenheimer's thoughts in some kind of light here and explore what those motives might be and might have been. I might have read the um, the piece by Mersheimer that you're mentioning about the impracticality of, of actually occupying and integrating Ukraine, which would actually speak to my point that the, that's not the objective, but rather to prevent Ukraine from becoming uh, a neo-colony of the United States, if you will. Hmm. Um, one thing that strikes me about the last year of coverage has been how the media has gone from depicting the Russians as simply, you know, vicious invaders to becoming comical in their ineptness. So that's become the theme now that, well, the Russians are suffering such heavy casualties and, you know, surely public opinion's got to turn against Putin at some point. I mean, they're, they're thinking wishfully, I think. But, you know, that strikes me that looking at Bakhmut, for example, today's coverage of that, there were some people on both CNN and, and uh, MSNBC noting that, well, a U.S. State Department and U.S. military officials have been sort of downplaying the ramifications of a Soviet, or excuse me, I can't help it, a Russian victory in Bakhmut. They've been saying, well, this is not very significant anymore. It would just be a political, morale-boosting event for the Russians. But today, uh, we're hearing from Zelensky himself being interviewed I think for 45 minutes tonight on CNN, uh, saying that the capture of that town would actually open the door to a broader invasion. And the Russians, for their part, the de defense ministry is also saying, you know, that's a strategic city. And when it falls, we will be able to chase and defeat the Ukrainian resistance. So I guess what I'm getting at is the potentiality of the Russian effort there is still unknown. We can't say, well, they've been so trounced and they've been forced to retreat on so many fronts that now the Ukrainians are going to win and they're going to go on a roll and they're going to retake Crimea. And I think that's dangerous, a dangerous projection. So we've seen this hesitation to provide certain types of weaponry and aircraft. But uh, there's also a sense that at some point this has got to be negotiated and there has to be some sort of compromise that respects the legitimate security interests of Russia to the extent that anybody still recognizes that there are such. <laughs> but realists do recognize yeah. that there are genuine uh, Russian security in interests involved. Uh, Macron 
has pointed that out. The Vatican has pointed it out that, you know, Russia is a European nation as well. And it, you know, it has to be part of a solution. So I, I guess the dialectic here is the U.S. prompted Ukraine to provoke this invasion by their demand to join NATO. And now uh, the U.S. is fully backing the Ukrainians, but beginning to wonder, or at least its allies are beginning to wonder, don't the Ukrainians at a certain point need to be pressured to accept something other than the complete reconquest of what they consider to be their turf? All right. Well, our conversation about uh, the war in Ukraine... Uh, one year in is uh, continuing. My name is Richard Hill. I'm here with Professor Gary Loop, and we will carry on. But you are listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org. Back to my question about what are Russia's goals, let's say, if not the complete subsuming of, of Ukraine and, and, and turning it into a part of the Russian Federation. Is it to occupy and control the Donbass permanently, as they have Crimea, and thus to create, to some degree, a buffer were Ukraine to pull the trigger and join NATO? Uh, that sounds plausible to me. But I, I, again, I think that the way that Putin is looking at things might be indicated by the content of that Chinese proposal, not that, had, not that it, he had anything to do with authoring it, but because it strikes him as acceptable and thus it indicates what his minimal bottom line is. And so according to that agreement, Russia pulls out its troops that have invaded Ukraine. But uh, the Donbass is defined, is, is also demilitarized and defined as a contested region. There's lots of precedent for that. And Crimea maybe also, but I think the, the proposal suggests that the uh, Ukrainians simply accept that Crimea is going to be part of Russia as it was from 1780 or so up until 1956 and, you know, and then there was that interim up until 2014. So that's a key proposal that uh, given the fact that this is principally a Russian inhabited region, culturally, linguistically Russian, and given that despite uh, some people's doubts about the validity of the referendum in 2014, uh, in all probability, most people want to be part of Russia, not Ukraine. But anyway, uh, I think that what the Russians, and not just Putin, but uh, any possible successor, would find acceptable is uh, an independent, sovereign Ukraine that is not part of a hostile military alliance. And as for the Donbass, I'm not sure how valuable it is as a buffer in terms of a military barrier of some sort. But I think the fact that it is culturally Russian and linguistically Russian causes uh, any Russian politician to want to say, we will nurture these people. We will, now that they've asked to be redrawn into the fold and now that they're subject to the threat of these fascists in Kiev, I think it would be hard for the Russians to accept departure. But the Chinese plan does talk about an internationally supervised election, a referendum. But it, had the Russians just said, no, this is a, no, a non-starter the way the U.S. did, 
the U.S. basically depicted the document as pro-Russian, serving Russian interests, which uh, I think is a really Monarchian way of looking at things, as, as they tend to look at everything. You, you notice how India and Brazil are being harshly criticized because they have failed to line up behind the United States and to vote for the resolutions in the United Nations that the U.S. has presented. Like, well, you know, if, if, if they're going to try to be neutral and they're going to try to, you know, continue to have trade relations with Russia, then they're really unfriendly. You know, don't they understand we've all got to pull together behind Ukraine? But the fact that the United States is unable to obtain that consensus in the southern part of the planet, uh, in India and Brazil and lots of places, is significant. You know, and, and also the fact that the U.S. is depicting China as a virtual ally of Russia when it's not. If you watch um, the Chinese uh, news media, the international media, the treatment of the war in Ukraine is very critical of Russia very sympathetic to the Ukrainian people. Uh, I don't think anyone watching it would suspect that the Chinese government is somehow on Russia's side in an obvious way. Oh. Zelensky, for, for, from his uh, perspective, uh, was interviewed the other day and he was saying, well, don't forget we have a huge trade relationship with China and we have a generally positive relationship with China. So it's not really in his interest that the U.S. tries to simplify everything and to castigate uh, these people who are not going along with its specific program as on the Russian side. I mean, it's possible to be conflicted or in the middle. And yeah. the U.S. doesn't want that. Just as during the Cold War, it saw the non-aligned movement as basically, you know, uh, another form of communism or people who were somehow hoodwinked by the communists. You've got to be for us or against us, as George W. Bush said after 9-11. Yeah, it does harken back to those dark days. Absolutely. I mean, in, in fact, the other night on Rachel Maddow, Rachel Maddow's show Monday was, I guess, uh, no, a week ago, Monday. Uh, she had, uh, there was, I guess, a, a, like a, a peace demonstration a, a, a demonstration calling for negotiations, calling for mm -hmm. the, the end of the Ukraine war in uh, in Washington, in the capital. And um, I, when I subsequent reports on that indicated there were about a thousand people there. Uh, Rachel Maddow smeared that the demonstration by calling it a, a ragtag band of strange bedfellows like Proud Boys and other fringe far leftists, who some of whom were uh, waving Russian flags. She didn't mention that there were people also waving Ukrainian flags at the demonstration. That was her preamble to smearing that demonstration, not mentioning, by the way, that there was actually a fairly sizable crowd, given that this is the first demonstration yeah. manifestation against the war that we've seen. She then went on to present the shopworn view that the Maidan rebellion or revolution was, in fact, a people's revolution as opposed to a U.S.-inspired coup. And anybody now who waves the flag of peace or advocates for negotiations is regarded as a Putin tool, a Putin pawn. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, back in the Iraq war, you know, freedom fries. And, and the French <laughs> became the, you know, the whipping post, you know, for our... The old, the America's oldest enemy. This is the name of uh, some book. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> remember Lafayette and all that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, the oldest. But these people don't know jack shit about history. And so they just make it up and, and their viewers haven't been much educated. And you would think that people living through the Iraq War and the Afghan War, a 20-long-year period of occupation which failed miserably, you'd think that they'd put two and two together and realize that the U.S. government and its Pentagon and the U.S. military-industrial complex is not your friend that can do good things. It's like Boromir's you know, attitude towards the ring in the Lord of the Rings. He said, why don't we use it for good? And here are people who still think, after the bloody crime of the Iraq War, that the U.S. has some sort of moral high ground so that it can say these things like, we will not stand by and allow a country to attack another, to invade another. Oh, come on. And so the South... You know, the the people who've been victimized by imperialism historically and have some sensitivity to these things are looking at the United States and thinking, what hypocrisy. Wind down here. I just want to mention that, uh, you know, I'm just struck by the grotesque irony of the fact that a progressive such as myself, you know, who argue against the ever-increasing arms allotments to Ukraine find themselves aligned with the likes of such really foul and repugnant creatures as Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron DeSantis, and Matt Gates. you know, who, uh, Matt Gates, for example, apparently issued a a scathing rebuke of U.S. Defense Department officials concluding that the U.S. money spent on guaranteeing Ukrainian pensions would be better spent in the U.S. on bolstering the pension reserves here. I mean, it's in what bizarre planet is this actually happening where the extreme crazy right wing are advocating for things that are more sensible than the uh, mainstream? Uh, Yeah, and and fascists are supposed to be adherence to the theory that war is the health of the state and that, you know, the state has got to constantly be in war. But that's not what these uh, these scumbags are, are saying. It's not what Trump was saying. So vile, for sure. But I wasn't concerned about World War III breaking out under Trump the way that I am now. Yes, uh, and, yeah. and to watch these, these newscasters, you know, in, in, in their capacity as the presenters of the news over an hour or so, skip from topic to topic, and here they're, they're so progressive-sounding when it comes to transgendered children and you know, a whole range of, of issues which with which I would agree with them. And then they start to talk about Ukraine, and they are basically rooting for war. When they talk about, well, there's yet to be a decision on the F-16s or on some sort of tank, or, it's like, you know, they're disappointed, and they're hoping that the arms shipment will go through, and never reflecting that maybe one of these days we will cross that red line, really, which will cause the Russians to use limited nuclear weapons or a, a limited nuclear strike to make a point. Yeah. It's, it's like they've become so confident in Ukrainian victory that they don't see the possibility for twists and turns and maybe the, the uh, what is it, Bulletin of Nuclear Scientists is always posting its clock and uh, we're now closer than ever to midnight on that nuclear clock. That's the number one news story. 
that we are getting close to World War III. But, you know, we're dealing with a very dire situation, which is not being given the seriousness that it requires. Well, on that somber note, and actually very passionately expressed, we will thank you very much, Professor Gary Loop, Tufts University, and we'll hope that some of the more dire consequences of this adventure, both by Russia and now the United States fighting a proxy war there, does not result in the worst outcome that you alluded to there. But once again, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Good night.